Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. And tonight, I'd like to talk about something that we all have to a greater or lesser degree, and that is influence. We all have it, not just the power brokers or the movers and the shakers or the people who have a gazillion followers on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. When we vote, when we participate in a neighbourhood event, when we attend and serve in a church, when we give, when we offer an opinion, when we greet that person who serves us in the supermarket, when we wave at that passing child, when we offer forgiveness to someone who has hurt us. Here's what we're doing. We're exerting influence. And in changing or making an impact on that tiny part of the world that is ours, we're actually changing the world. In our church recently, we've been looking again at the many initiatives and programs that we're operating. But here's the danger. People can feel that they can only make an impact when they're part of an organized program. But the truth is, our influence can be organic as we send that email, make that phone call of encouragement, or send a note to that chap who lives five doors down from us. Don't take that literally, it's just an illustration. We all have influence. The question is, how shall we use it? Influence, it's something we all have to a greater or lesser degree. We can use it every day. And often, we're not aware of the effect that we have. As I mentioned earlier, a word here, a, a kind gesture there, a moment of time offered in the midst of a busy day, all of these can change a life for good or for ill forever. Her name was Mrs. Richardson. Her influence changed my life. She was the eternally harassed religious education teacher at the sprawling comprehensive school in Essex that I attended. Not that many people were interested in RE, she knew this well and seemed to be on a bit of a mission from God to change our indifference to interest. But she was permanently in a rush, years before the administrative stresses and pressures that came to the teaching profession with the advent of the national curriculum. She was seemingly on the go every second of the working day. She was also ahead of year, which brought its own quantity of hassle. She could be seen running from classroom to classroom, clutching folders overstuffed with matters pending, arriving breathless but smiling. Passionate about her subject, she spoke with intensity and conviction about God, as if her very life depended upon him. She would laugh and cry and encourage and chajole, her thin arms flailing around, her bony fingers stabbing and jabbing. I heard that she was also a minister's wife, so, in addition to her pressure cooker existence at school, there was a whole other life with more than enough demands of its own. She convinced me that I should study RE to O-level, these days GCSE. At the time, I thought that all things religious, especially Christian, would be reserved for strange people who needed to get out more. I wondered at just how useful RE would be to my future career choice. But I took it anyway, and I passed well. She told me that I absolutely had to do RE at A-level. I wondered again about the academic usefulness of such a move. But there was something about her energy, about the sparkle in her eyes that could be seen so clearly when she spoke about God. My friends thought that I was mad. What was I going to be when I left school? Some kind of vicar? I joined in with their scoffing, mocked myself really, 
And then I signed up to do that A-level. Perhaps it was her patience that did it. Even insensitive students like us knew that other members of staff used to take advantage of her, use her, load her down with work and expect her to smile and serve just because she was a Christian and a minister's wife at that. I'm sad to say that I made my own contribution to the assault on her patience in the early years of those GCE studies. During a lesson, when I gave the nod, every one of us in the class would simultaneously take a dive off of our chairs and end up on our backs on the floor, arms and legs flapping wildly like stranded sheep. She discovered that I was the architect and ringleader of the circus and prescribed the ultimate punishment. I was to go to the headmaster's office and bring back the cane and book. The thin bamboo cane was loathed and feared. Its whip could raise a wheel in a second. The black book was used to write the offender's name and details, a solemn testament to our misdeeds. I got to the door. I was genuinely afraid and I turned round and said, please miss, I'm really sorry. I expected a short rebuff and a reiterated command to fetch the instrument of torture, but instead her face broke out into a soft smile. All right, Geoffrey, I forgive you. Now sit down and behave yourself. Amazed, I ran to my seat and sat attentive and tight-lipped for the rest of the lesson. Never again would I be the conductor of the disruptive orchestra that was our class. I had tasted sheer grace. She used to tell me about God in front of the whole class. She wasn't that subtle. Geoffrey, you need to be saved, urgently, she would declare. And then came that smile again. In a way, I think I fell in love with her. But this was not the dizzy madness of a teenage infatuation, but a genuine admiration for someone who so obviously cared. I wanted to please her, to do well in my exams. I knew that for some reason my results seemed to be important to her. When I became interested in Christianity and made the decision to visit a church, it was her that I telephoned. She assured me that I would find a welcome at the Pentecostal church that her husband led, and I certainly did. Her husband was everything that I'd hoped for. He wore a haircut of madness with wild, frizzy hair, and his whole face was a broad smile. During his preaching, he would constantly tug at the plastic dog collar, clerical collar that constricted his neck, as if he was never completely comfortable wearing it. When I became a follower of Jesus, they both lavished love and kindness upon me. She was delighted, thrilled even, at my conversion. And when I shared that I was feeling a call to ministry, she was the first person that I wanted to tell. I lost touch with her for years. Ministry, and then a change of continent for us, and then a change of denomination, meant that our paths no longer crossed. And then came the day when I learned that she was dying. A terminal cancer was eating her life away, and quickly. I went to see her. It was a slightly awkward meeting, to be honest. I'd changed denomination, and she didn't entirely approve. I felt a little bit like a schoolboy again, as if I had an audience with teacher, and was nervous of a red correction or an F on my paper. Her beautiful hair was gone. Her head was swathed in a turban to mask her baldness. I knew that this would be the last time I would see her on earth. I wanted to thank her for changing my life, and I did. She smiled again, that smile. And she told me how, twenty years after I'd left school, my school books were still in her possession. For some reason, a valuable souvenir for her. I left. And a few weeks later, she left life. 
but her smile, her grace, her patience and her long-suffering made a deep and lasting impact on the wet cement that was my adolescent years. I give her A plus for influence. Influence, that's what we're thinking about. And one way that we can make an impact, that we can influence, is in the way that we act when we are offended. If I had a pound coin for every time I've heard a Christian use the O word for offended, I'd weigh a ton. Some believers have a fantastic capacity to be offended. They're the ones everyone else in the church describes as prickly, sensitive, awkward, or difficult. You can always hear the crunch crunch of eggshells being walked on when people get around them. It doesn't take much to irritate them. I met four black belt offended types recently. They were older ladies and they were so upset with me that they stomped out of the Sunday evening church meeting before I'd even started preaching. I had noticed that five rows back there was a lot of muttering, sniffing, narrowing of eyes and then finally the march of the haughty four. So why the quadruple walkout? I later learned that my sin was that I'd invited the congregation to take a few pre-sermon moments to say hello to each other, to share a handshake or something, obviously pre-COVID. Apparently, this particular church didn't include the saying of hello in its vision statement, hence the huffy-puffy walkout. The pastor was a warm-hearted, compassionate shepherd who was eager to visit the retiring sisters to restore them as lost sheep to the flock. I admire him. To be honest, I was inclined towards a lamb kebab with heaps of mint sauce. Easily offended people bore me. I'm sure I'm quite wrong in my lack of patience. Sue is a lady that I bumped into recently who could have so easily have chosen the offended look, you know, pouting lip and downcast eyes, the woundedness bleeding from every pore. But she didn't go that way. She chose to laugh instead and her laugh impacted me it carried influence. Sue was walking into a Sunday morning meeting in church and I was in a hurry and didn't pay any attention to the fact that she was pushing something in front of her as she navigated her way through the oaken double doors. Sue had been pregnant. I mean, hugely pregnant. So massive had she become during the past nine months, it was rumoured that Goodyear was sponsoring her confinement. I wondered if she was carrying a house group in there, that perhaps there might be the faint sound of slightly out-of-tune acoustic guitar playing coming from her abdomen. Hurrying in behind her, I glanced momentarily at what seemed to be her still considerable girth, and the words tumbled out before my brain had time to catch them. Sadly, that often happens to me. So then, Sue, no baby yet then? She paused in the doorway, obviously stunned by my rank stupidity. Actually, Jeff, I had the baby this week. That's why I'm pushing this pram with the baby in it, believe it or not. Her eyes sparkled with the joy that breaks out when one meets a truly authentically stupid person like me. But there was no malice or edge in her voice. I'm so sorry, Sue, I said. I mean, um, congratulations. It's just that you look um, so um, big, said Sue. Completing my hapless sentence, I frantically searched for some ground of the swallow-me-up-now variety. Well, um, sorry, well done anyway. He's beautiful, I gushed, praying to God as I did that the bundle before me was a male. Sue could have been irritated, galled, or just mildly upset by my stupidity, but she was the reverse. 
She laughed with me, not at me. And the next time I saw her at church, she asked if I was doing okay. I nearly telephoned you that afternoon, she smiled. I was worried that you might be concerned. You didn't have to be at all. Sue could have glared, but she grinned. She gave grace in the face of my mindlessness. Her hobbies don't include being offended. With kindness, with graciousness, she made an impact. She influenced. Hooray for Sue and all people like her. Influence, that's been our subject tonight. Recently, I've been spending a lot of time studying one young man. He was probably between the ages of 12 to 18 when he was deported. I've studied the life of Daniel in the Bible. Daniel spent most of his life in what we might call lockdown. He lived in the restrictions of a city that he didn't choose to live in for probably around 60 years. He lived a second choice life. What's a second choice life? It's a life that we wouldn't choose. At one level, we all experience second choices every day. At a trivial level, when we can't find that parking space, when we are regretting the fact that we can't meet our friends because of lockdown. Let's face it, we're all in second choices at the moment with the COVID crisis. But Daniel, in a second choice experience, not only thrived, but he also found ways of having influence and how he impacted his world. I've written a book about Daniel that's just been released in the last few weeks. It's called Singing in Babylon, Finding Purpose in Life's Second Choices. The response to the book so far has been amazing. I planned the book a couple of years ago, long before COVID was on the horizon. And yet it seems that this is a message for today, as we all find ourselves, as I said, in second choice. Singing in Babylon is the book. You can get it from your local Christian bookstore, even though many of them are closed. Some are offering the facility to pick up a book from the store. Or you can go to amazon.co.uk or eden.co.uk and order the book, Singing in Babylon. In the book, we learn we can all have influence for good or for ill. May we all make an impact for good and for God this week. See you next time. Lucas on Life.